This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is loving the Lord and staying on His side. In the first half, Sherry L. Dew shares her address, living on the Lord's side of the line. Then in the second half, Joseph B. Wertheland speaks on the two guiding lights. When I was a student here, I took a year off from my studies to tour with a professional USO group that entertained at military bases around the world. One trip took us to the Far East, and before we left, my father gave me a very strong warning. I'm worried about this trip, he told me. Be careful. Don't go anywhere you shouldn't go. Well, his words caught my attention, but frankly, as our adventure in the Orient began, I forgot about his caution. Well, one day we were scheduled to perform at a base near the demilitarized zone that separates it runs between North and South Korea. Our escort officer asked us if we would like to go into the demilitarized zone and visit Panmunjom, where the peace treaty ending the Korean War had been signed. It was a place of great historical significance. Well, relations between the two Koreas were quite strained at the time, and we asked this officer if it was safe. He assured us it was, but then he promptly furnished waivers we had to sign that absolved the military of responsibility in case we died. I suddenly remembered my father's warning, be careful, don't go anywhere, you shouldn't go. But you know, I didn't want to be the killjoy, and I was a little curious myself, so I shrugged off the worry, I signed the waiver, and off we headed into the DMZ, where we were no longer under the protection of the U.S. Armed Forces. Well, that reality was immediately evident as we drove past rows of somber North Korean soldiers sporting machine guns. Don't look them in the eyes, we were warned. Anything can set them off. Well, as we joked about our bodies never being found, my stomach started to churn, and my father's warning played over and over in my mind in digital Dolby sound. I knew I had indeed gone somewhere I shouldn't have gone. Frankly, the experience was nerve-wracking. I felt as though I was behind enemy lines. And as fascinating as the excursion was for a history major, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was not until we crossed the border back into South Korea that I again felt safe. And as it turns out, for good reason. Later that week, three Americans were shot and killed in the demilitarized zone. With this experience in mind, would you consider these words from President George Albert Smith, quote, There is a division line well defined that separates the Lord's territory from Lucifer's. If we live on the Lord's side of the line, Lucifer cannot come there to influence us. But if we cross the line into his territory, we are in his power. By keeping the commandments of the Lord, we are safe on his side of the line. But if we disobey his teachings, we voluntarily cross into the zone of temptation and invite the destruction that is ever present there. Knowing this, how anxious we should always be to live on the Lord's side of the line. Unquote. I repeat, if we live on the Lord's side of the line, Lucifer cannot come there to influence us. What an offer of security and safety in a world Lucifer has turned into enemy-occupied territory, a world where his enticements are more enslaving and provocative than ever, a world where he will resort to any tactic to lure us to his side of the line where we are no longer under the influence and protection of the Holy Ghost.
Now, thankfully, Satan can't make us do anything. Said the prophet Joseph, quote, As well might the devil seek to dethrone Jehovah as overthrow an innocent soul that resists everything which is evil, unquote. The only power the adversary has is power we give him when we sin or when we break our covenants. We have not been left to withstand the wiles of the adversary alone, for the power of Jesus Christ is stronger than the power of the devil. Hence the promise that Lucifer cannot influence us when we stay on the Lord's side of the line. No wonder we are counseled, pray always, lest that wicked one have power in you and remove you out of your place. No wonder we have been admonished, stand ye in holy places and be not moved. Very simply, our physical and spiritual safety lies in never even getting close to the line that separates light from dark, good from evil. Jesus Christ showed us how to deal with the adversary. When Satan tempted him, there was no clever repartee, no battle of wills, just immediate dismissal. Get thee behind me, Satan, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. If the omniscient Jehovah wasn't willing to debate with the adversary, how quickly ought we to run for our eternal lives when confronted? with even the slightest hint of evil. Now, you're smart. You're even exceptional. President Gordon B. Hinckley has stated repeatedly that you are the finest generation this earth has ever seen. But that prophetic endorsement notwithstanding, you're not that smart. You're not resilient enough to tangle with the adversary. You can never match his cunning or his talent for deception and diversion. He will outsmart and outmaneuver and outlast you every time you willingly consent to a duel. Lucifer is like the ultimate carnival barker. Step right up. Come on in. Don't miss the greatest show on earth. But once he has you inside his tent, he leaves you to twist in agony and isolation and darkness. Happily. The choice about which side of the line we stand on is ours, for we are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator or captivity and death, according to the captivity of the devil. The choice is ours. If we will allow him, Jesus Christ will shield and deliver us from Lucifer, who because of his rebellion and his arrogance and his thirst for power forfeited his inheritance and is now bent on jeopardizing ours. How crucial it therefore is that we become steadfast and immovable on the Lord's side of the line where we are not only protected but ultimately sealed up unto the Lord. Now the principle of being steadfast and immovable kind of reminds me of the North Carolina Tar Heels. I'm a basketball junkie, I admit it, and as a product of the great basketball state of Kansas, I've watched many a ball game between the KU Jayhawks and the Tar Heels. Do you know what the Tar Heel mascot represents? Well, during the Civil War, those tough Carolina farm boys refused to concede ground to the Union Army, and it was said that they stood as though they had tar on their heels. They would not budge. Being steadfast and immovable with our heels in tar on the Lord's side of the line is the only strategy that works long-term against Lucifer. Some of his enticements are blatant and cause those who succumb to take giant leaps into his territory. Any breach of morality is immorality. Anything that isn't honest is dishonest. Any exposure to pornography, drugs, alcohol, and even excessive materialism moves us to the adversary's side of the line. 
But if you can't get us to succumb to blatant evil, the adversary tries to coax us onto his side of the line by resorting to strategies that slowly wear us down, weaken our resolve, and dim our memory of who we are. See if any of these sound familiar. Lucifer whispers that it doesn't matter what we do now. There's plenty of time later to get our spiritual act together. It's the sin now, pay later plan. He feeds our vanity with promises of popularity, power, and prosperity. He tells us what we want to hear, that life is supposed to be easy and fun, and that if we experience pain or what we consider to be undeserved difficulties, the gospel must not be working. He always promotes shortcuts, even though there are no shortcuts to anywhere worth going. He wants us to compare ourselves to others and then to criticize and judge one another. He numbs us to a sliding scale of morality so that we eventually embrace behaviors that repulsed us earlier. He wants us to believe that anything short of blatant immorality is just sport, no harm, no foul. He wants us so absorbed with school, dating, and careers that we don't have time to really live the gospel to learn how to receive answers to prayer, to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. He rejoices in even small breaches in our integrity because he knows that unless checked, they will ultimately lead us away carefully down to hell. That's how Nephi described it. When we succumb to the adversary's tactics, we experience what I did that day in the DMZ, total anxiety and the loss of peace of mind. Because with all of his cunning, the adversary cannot duplicate joy or peace, which is why there is such safety on the Lord's side of the line where the power of the priesthood and the Holy Ghost protect us. So how do we stay on the Lord's side of the line with all of the challenges that we face in this life? How do we do that? How do we stand in holy places and be not moved? In this, the year 2000, there is a lot we can learn from Helaman and his 2,000 stripling warriors. You know the story. 2,000 righteous young men stepped forward to fight in the stead of their fathers, who had made a covenant to never again shed the blood of their brethren. These young men were ultimately victorious against a much larger, more experienced Lamanite army for several reasons. Number one. Before the sons of Helaman began their campaign, they entered into a covenant that they would never give up their liberty but would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. It's the same with us. The first step towards consecration and total commitment to the Lord is making covenants with Him. That's what we do at baptism. That is what we do again later with powerful spiritual ramifications when we enter the house of the Lord. There is power in making covenants. Weekly, as we renew our covenants and promise to take upon ourselves the name of the Son, to always remember Him, and I'd like you to think about what your life is like when you really, if we could really always remember Him, and to keep His commandments, we receive in return a transcendent promise, one filled with heavenly power, that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. Having the Holy Ghost with us and learning to hear His voice is a key, perhaps the single most profound key to remaining steadfast and immovable on the Lord's side of the line. And it all begins with our willingness to make covenants. Number two, the stripling warriors not only made covenants, they kept them. 
They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. Very simply, they did what they said they would do. They weren't always looking for ways to straddle the line between right and wrong. After President Hinckley was interviewed by Mike Wallace for 60 minutes, I had occasion to talk with Mr. Wallace about their conversation. Do you know what Wallace seemed most impressed with? That President Hinckley had done everything in connection with their interview that he had promised to do. So when I later offered to show Wallace how I intended to quote him in President Hinckley's biography, he replied, that's not necessary. You're a Mormon. I trust you. Now, come on. Do you really think this seasoned journalist believes every member of our Church is trustworthy? Sight unseen, he is not that naive. But his expression was not a reflection of me. It was a reflection of his experience with President Hinckley. In effect, he was saying, if you're associated with that man, then I assume that you, too, will do what you have told me you will do. Are we true at all times to the things with which we have been entrusted? Do we tell the truth? Are we true to those who have trusted us with their love and their confidence? Are we true to the knowledge that we are sons and daughters of God with a transcendent, eternal future? Are we true to the whisperings of the Spirit when they come? Are we doing what we promised to do before we came here? The Stripling Warriors not only kept their covenants, but they performed every word of command with exactness. I love that word, exactness. In other words, they kept their covenants with precision. A half-hearted effort to keep the Sabbath day holy, or be morally clean, or tell the truth, or dress modestly, is really no effort at all. Joseph Smith didn't say that we sort of believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, and virtuous. On Sinai, the Lord didn't declare, Thou shalt not steal unless you're in a real bind. He didn't say, Thou shalt rarely covet. He didn't say, Thou shalt not commit adultery very often. He said, Thou shalt not. Clearly delineating lines we are not to cross. Lines that represent breaches in integrity or morality or virtue so serious that they drive the spirit away and lead ultimately to the destruction of our souls. Lines to stay away from lest we lose control of our thoughts, our motives, or our actions and step into Lucifer's territory where we come under his control. Men and women who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage will tell you that their demise began with something small with some seemingly insignificant breach of integrity that escalated. The little things do matter. It's not possible to profess righteousness and flirt with sin at the same time. Believe me, Lucifer wants you of the noble birthright. He wants your minds and your bodies and your souls. I dare say there is no greater smirking in the underworld than when he gets his chains around one of you. It is as we keep the commandments and our covenants with exactness that the Lord strengthens us. The supreme example is the Savior Himself. In Gethsemane, it was after He renewed His covenant, saying, Not my will, but thine be done, that there appeared an angel unto Him from heaven, strengthening Him, so that He could endure what lay ahead. When on the cross He uttered the words, It is finished, thy will is done. He became the greatest example in time or eternity of keeping covenants. There would have been no atonement 
had the Lord not kept His covenant precisely as He promised. It's the same with us. As we recommit ourselves, the Lord strengthens us to withstand any temptation. Living as Latter-day Saints, admittedly, is not always easy. But it's a lot easier than the alternative. The cost of discipleship, as high as it may be, is less than the price of sin. It's less costly than having the Holy Ghost withdraw or losing self-respect or jeopardizing our eternal lives. Number three, the stripling warriors were believers. They believed. Their faith in Christ was active and it was dynamic. They believed that He truly could move mountains, not to mention battalions of bloodthirsty Lamanites bent on their destruction, if they had faith in Him. Thus, when asked to put their lives on the line, they responded without hesitation, Our God is with us and He will not suffer that we should fall, so let us go forth. They believed that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. There is a reason that faith is the first principle of the gospel, because it is our willingness to believe Christ, to believe that He will do what He has said He will do, that activates the power of the Atonement in our lives. The Lord has promised to do all things for the children of men if it so be that they exercise faith in Him. As our faith increases, we come to understand the magnificent promises He has made to those who live on His side of the line. He promised to heal our broken hearts and to set at liberty them who are bruised, to give power to the faint and to increase the strength of those who have no strength, to help us bear our burdens with ease, to succor or run to us if we will seek after Him, and to allow the devil no power over us if we will build our lives upon His rock, meaning the rock of the Savior. No doubt most of us here believe the Lord can do these things, but do we believe that He will, that He will heal our broken hearts and help us bear our burdens? The Lord has said that if we only desire to believe, to let that desire work in us and to experiment upon His words, can't you almost hear the Savior pleading, Try me. Put me to the test. See if I won't do for you what I have said I will do. My testimony to you is that He will and that He does. But we must first believe, as did the sons of Helaman, who hadn't been trained in warfare, but they had been taught the things of the Spirit. Consequently, they fought as with the strength of God. Yea, never were men known to have fought with such miraculous strength and with such mighty power. Not only was their faith in the Lord strong at the beginning of their march, it remained strong throughout their entire ordeal. Every one of these young men was wounded, and at one point they nearly starved to death. But instead of wavering, they turned to the Lord and pled for strength, which they received. Having faith didn't make their challenges disappear. It didn't make marching in Helaman's army easy. It didn't disqualify them from pain. But their faith did enable them to draw upon the power of God, which sustained them through their test and ultimately delivered them. We will not win the battle in which we are currently engaged if we do not fight as with the strength of God. For the voices of Satan are noisy, they are relentless, and they are celebrated. The gap between the way men and women of God and the men and women of the world live will only grow wider. But you know what? That's okay. As long as we 
the Lord's covenant people feel confident about who we are. We have every reason to, for when Nephi foresaw the Latter-day Church, he beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. Nephi was seeing you and me. We may be small numerically, but the influence of those armed with righteousness and the power of God in great glory will be felt far beyond our numbers. We can't win this battle alone, but we're not required to, for it is in the strength of the Lord that we can do all things. And that process begins with our faith. Number four. The stripling warriors' faith began at home, where they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. Not only did those righteous, faithful, dedicated mothers teach their sons the gospel, but the stripling warriors listened, which almost certainly prepared them to follow the prophet Helaman into battle when the time came for them to do so. The lesson for us is clear. Choose carefully who you listen to and then listen. Choose carefully who you will follow and then follow. With rare exceptions, no one cares more about your welfare than do your parents. Listen to them with confidence. But also listen to prophets, seers, and revelators whose counsel is motivated only by their desire to teach truth and their belief in your divine potential, and not because they want your money or your vote or your support. If we don't listen to the prophet, we might as well not have one. Satan tries to confuse us about voices and heroes and role models. He encourages us to worship the bright and beautiful regardless of their values or motives. He makes the lives of the rich and famous look intoxicating when in reality many are just intoxicated. <laughs> just because someone can shoot a ball through a hoop under pressure or record a hit song that hits the top 40 or launch a billion-dollar IPO does not mean that he or she deserves our respect, and it certainly doesn't mean that their lives are a pattern for our lives. Jesus Christ gave us the one sure pattern. If we are wise, we will follow only those who lead us closer to Him. That is the litmus test for evaluating anyone's motives. Number five, happiness and joy come only from living the gospel. They come in no other way. Said Helaman after leading his 2,000 into battle, I was filled with exceeding joy because of the goodness of God in preserving us. Joy and righteousness are inseparably connected, though Satan would have us believe otherwise, namely that joy and worldly pleasures are one and the same, but they're not. Likewise, Satan would have us believe that happiness can never be found in obedience, which he portrays as confining and constraining rather than liberating. But that is a lie. Here's just one example. In today's world, where immorality is celebrated on nearly every world stage, succumbing to moral temptation is depicted as being easier and even more desirable than maintaining moral purity. But it isn't. The moment of sexual transgression is the last moment immorality is the easy choice. I have never known anyone who was happier or who felt better about themselves or who had greater peace of mind as a result of immorality, not anyone, not ever. 
As someone who has remained unmarried two and a half decades beyond a traditional marriageable age, not by my choice, by the way, I know a little something about the challenge of chastity. It's not always easy. But I'm here to tell you today that it's a lot easier than the alternative. Of that, I am sure. Chastity is much easier than regret or the loss, the total loss of self-respect. It's easier than shallow and failed relationships. It's easier than the agony of breaking covenants. This is not to say that there are never temptations. Even at the ripe old age of 46, having long ago decided how I wanted to live my life, I have to be careful all the time. There are things I simply cannot watch, cannot read, cannot listen to because they trigger thoughts and instincts that drive the spirit away and that edge me too close to the moral line. But those supposed sacrifices are well worth it. Of that I am sure. It is so much more comforting to live with the spirit than without. It is so much more joyful to have relationships of trust and true friendship than to indulge in a physical relationship that would eventually crumble anyway. Whereas Satan's lies lead only to enslavement, the Savior's promise is that if we will seek the riches our Father wishes to give us, that we shall be the richest of all people, for we shall have the riches of eternity. In other words, we shall have joy in this life and a fullness in the life hereafter. Righteousness begets happiness. Number six. In this account, of the sons of Helaman, it was the rising generation who bolstered and strengthened the body of the Church and who stepped forward to save the day. When their help was needed, these young men were ready, they were worthy, and they were willing to respond. Again and again, if you read the account, they came to the rescue, often reinforcing the older Nephite army who tended to wear down as the battle wore on. The stripling warriors were like the cavalry in those old westerns who arrived in the nick of time to save the day. As with Helaman's young army, you are the cavalry, here to carry on the work of the Lord at an intense and vital stage of the battle, a battle that began with the war in heaven and that rages to this very day. Helaman told Moroni that his little force, those are his words, little force, had given the Nephite army great hopes and much joy. As compared with Helaman's 2000, today there are nearly two million of you in this Church between the ages of 18 and 25. Nevertheless, compared with the world's population and its escalating depravity, you are a little force. But also, as in Helaman's day, we of older generations rejoice in your strength and in your goodness. You bring great hope and much joy to the body of the Church. You are latter-day reinforcements prepared during eons of premortality to face the enemy, reinforcements who must now step forward to strengthen the body of the Church and to help us keep moving forward, as President Hinckley often says, without ever a backward step. My dear young friends whom I truly love, Will you commit this very hour, once again, to be true to who you are, to plant your feet in tar on the Lord's side of the line? I invite you to begin by going home and taking inventory. There may be clothes or CDs or videos or magazines you need to throw out. Just do it. Toss out those movies with foul language and violence and sexual innuendo. 
If you can't resist adult Internet sites, unhook the Internet. No video, no CD, no website is worth crossing over into Satan's territory. No enticement is worth jeopardizing your exaltation. You'll love how this kind of spiritual spring cleaning makes you feel. But that's just part one, and it's the easy part. Part two involves taking an inventory of your language, your integrity and your dedication, your virtue, the way you treat others. One by one, will you begin to throw out thoughts and behaviors and habits that pull you towards enemy territory? I'll take the challenge. Will you take it with me? For each of you, then, only this question remains. Will you stand steadfast and immovable on the Lord's side of the line? The Lord will be on your side if you will stay on His. For He has promised, I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and my angels round about you to bear you up. Jesus is the Christ. This is his work. Every one of us here was foreordained to stand where we stand in his kingdom. May we stand in holy places on the Lord's side of the line and be not moved. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is loving the Lord and staying on His side. We've just heard from Sherry L. Dew. After the break, we'll return with Joseph B. Worthlin for The Two Guiding Lights. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is loving the Lord and staying on His side. Next is Joseph B. Worthlin, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled The Two Guiding Lights. Like many others, I have followed with interest the landing of an unmanned craft on the planet Mars. What a remarkable feat. Since the early 1960s, 35 missions have been launched from Earth to the Red Planet. Of these, less than one-third have been considered successful. Mars, on average, is roughly 50 million miles away. Can you imagine the challenge of the launching of a rocket from Earth to the planet that is traveling faster than 66,000 miles per hour itself, crossing millions of miles of space and then arriving at another planet that is hurling through space at its own speed of 54,000 miles per hour. But getting the rovers to the planet is not only part of the challenge. Landing them safely was another. Scientists knew the landers would make its descent through the Martian atmosphere at a rate of 12,000 miles per hour. Even after deploying their parachutes, the rovers would be going too fast to land safely. So the scientists designed a cocoon of glorified airbags that would surround the rovers, cushioning it during impact. The landing worked beautifully, and the rovers are now exploring the surface of the red planet, collecting a harvest of images and data 
that will be studied by students and scientists for years to come. During my lifetime, there have been a number of great voyages that will ever be etched upon the pages of history. When I was a young boy, Charles A. Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic Ocean in his spirit of St. Louis. When he took off, many throughout the world held their breath, wondering if he would survive. He was a hero of mine, and I remember how we celebrated when news broke that he had landed in Paris. Another great voyage that took place in the summer of 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped away from the Apollo 11 lunar module with the words, That's one step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He set forth upon the moon. In the last century, mankind has taken many great journeys. We have mapped the human genome, made amazing advances in medicine, reached into the heavens and pulled back answers to riddles that have puzzled mankind for centuries. We're ever on the threshold of new journeys and new discoveries. Can you imagine the excitement of the Wright brothers on the morning of that first flight? The anticipation of Jonas Salk as he analyzed the data that demonstrated a way to prevent polio. Today I look at the youth of our Church and see nearly limitless anticipation you stand at the very threshold of life. Who is to say what your lives will hold? What discoveries will you make? What remarkable events will you witness? May I offer two words of counsel, two beacons of light that will provide direction to you during your journey. During the time of the Savior's ministry, the lawyers and students of Scripture often tried to catch him in a snare. They asked him questions, hoping that he would say something they could use against him. Of course, for them, this was an exercise in continual disappointment. The scriptures tell us that after Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees decided to try their hand with a question they were sure it would be impossible for him to answer. Master, they asked, which is the great commandment in the law? The reason they thought this was such a difficult question was that they themselves had invested an enormous amount of time trying to answer the questions themselves. In fact, they had determined that there were more than 600 commandments, 365 of them negative, 248 positive. That must have been quite a list. No wonder it was so hard to keep all the rules straight. In fact, the list was so cumbersome that the Pharisees had worked hard to identify which of the 600 commandments were heavy or most important, and those which were light, meaning of lesser importance. At any rate, it must have been a topic of considerable debate. And if the question was such a difficult one for the scholars, then certainly it would be impossible for this young from Galilee. Of course, in that hope, the Pharisees were once again disappointed, for the Messiah turned and answered their question directly, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He said, This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In a few short sentences, the Savior silenced the Pharisees and provided mankind with two great guiding commandments, commandments that belong at the center of and provide the foundation for all we think, feel, and do. Love the Lord and love your fellow man. These two 
guiding lights I wish to impress upon your hearts this day. These lights will shine ever in the darkness and provide guidance during the storms of life. Why does the Lord command us to love Him? He is all-powerful and all-knowing. Why, then, is the first commandment to love Him? Is He incomplete if we do not worship Him? Is He any less if we fail to acknowledge Him? Of course not. Then why is the first and great commandment to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind? The answer to this question has little to do with how our love benefits God and everything to do with how that love benefits us. When we love our Heavenly Father with all our heart, mind, mind, and strength, we follow Him joyfully. When we love our Heavenly Father, we leave behind the grudging have-to and embrace the enthusiastic can't-wait-to attitude. In thanksgiving, we joyfully walk the path of Lord, the path of discipleship that leads to Him. Why must we love the Lord? Because as we do so, we become refined, pure, and holy. When we love the Lord, the benefits of the Atonement can wash away our earthly stain, and through our sins, be as scarlet, we can become new creatures, filled with new life, new thoughts, and a desire to do good continually. When we love the Lord, we hunger and thirst for knowledge of Him. When we love the Lord, we cherish the scriptures, we hold the truths therein precious as gems of great worth. It is easy to say we love the Lord, but true devotion means more than mouthing syllables. If you love me, keep my commandments, the Savior taught. And so he urges us today, as members of the Church, keep the commandments. They will feel the influence and the guidance of the Spirit in their lives. Gradually, through a process of spiritual refinement, they will become sanctified and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Their prayers will become effectual, their faith more certain. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. The Lord has spoken in these latter days. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. The first light, then, that I would urge you to carry with you during your journey through life is love of the Lord. The second light I urge you to take with you is love for your fellow man. Loving our neighbor is not just a good idea. It is the core of what has distinguished the followers of Christ in every age since the beginning of time. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, the Savior taught, if ye have love one for another. Look at every Zion society from ancient times to present, and you will find at its center love for others. The great Book of Mormon prophet King Benjamin counseled that caring for others is linked to the power of the Atonement. For the sake of retaining remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, he taught his people, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and ministering to their relief both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants." The scriptures caution us that even our power of prayer is dependent upon our compassion for others. For if ye turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and afflicted, 
and impart of your substance, if ye have to those who stand in need, behold your prayers in vain, and availeth you nothing. Disciples of the living Christ have always known that as we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. The irony of this is that, although we may make a difference in the lives of those we help, often the person who benefits most from charitable service is the person who gives. When we sacrifice our time, talents, and resources for the sake of others, we refine our character and thereby become more fit for the kingdom. The Savior said, The poor will always be with us, and it is a good thing, too, because we cannot become exalted without them. We need the poor as much as the poor need us, as we open our hearts to those in need, whether they be poor or discouraged or grieving or in distress, and as we give of ourselves to lift their burdens, our problems seem a little smaller. We grow in spirit, we grow in peace. We grow in joy as we lift up the hands which hang down. The light within us grows a little brighter and illuminates the way before us. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that a member of the Church is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to provide for the widow, to dry up the tear of the orphan, to comfort the afflicted, whether in this Church or in any other, or in no, other, in no Church at all, wherever he finds them. In our day, President Gordon B. Hinckley has said, Where there is stark hunger, regardless of the cause, I will not let political considerations dull my sense of mercy or thwart my responsibility to the sons and daughters of God, whatever they may be or whatever their circumstances. Close quote. We may manifest our love for others by our kindness. Like the people in Alma's day, we too are desirous to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We manifest our uh, love for others by standing as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. The great missionary work of the Church is a testimony to our love of our fellow man. The gospel of Jesus Christ restored to the earth in these latter days is the great hope for individuals, families, communities, and for the world itself. We say to our friends, Come unto Christ. Enter the purifying waters of baptism. Receive the Holy Ghost, and your lives will be transformed in the light and life of the Spirit. Because of love of our fellow man, we enter holy temples to perform vicarious ordinances for those who have departed from this mortality without the blessings of the everlasting gospel. This act of compassion is selfless. It is an act of love for those who wait upon us praying continually for our assistance. Love is the great commandment. Love your enemies, the Savior proclaimed. Do good to them which hate you. Imagine for a moment how our lives would be transformed if everyone in the world had as a central motivation love and compassion for all of God's children. What do you suppose their families, wards, communities, and nations would be like if our central focus was less upon themselves and more on what they could do to serve others? We live in an age of industry. Our lives are filled to capacity with lists of tasks we need to accomplish. If you are like many, you place on lists things such as prayer, reading the scriptures, visiting the sick, and helping those in need. 
these two lights we have spoken, loving the Lord and loving our neighbor, are not merely things we should include on our list. They are the very essence of the list. For upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How much more meaningful would our lives be if our thoughts, hearts, and actions were guided by these two great lights? In 1885, the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy wrote a story about an old cobbler by the name of Martin who lived in a humble shop in a small village. He did quality work, didn't charge too much, and was reliable and honest. Like many of us, Martin had experienced his share of sorrow. He had buried not only his wife but his own son as well. In his grief, Martin prayed again and again that he too might die. Gradually, his despair gave way to anger, and Martin, in his bitterness, lost his faith and would have nothing to do with God. One day, a holy man who had spent eight years in prayer and meditation came by to see him. Martin opened his heart and told the man that he no longer wished to live, since he was quite without hope in the world. You have no right to say such things, Martin, the other said. We cannot judge God's ways. If God wills that your son die and you live, it must be best so. As to your despair, that comes because you wish to live for your own happiness. What else should one live for? asked Martin. For God, Martin, the old man said. He gives you life and you must live for him. When you have learned to live for him, you will grieve no more and all will seem easy to you. Martin was silent for a while and then asked, But how is one to live for God? The old man answered, Can you read? Then buy the Gospels and read them. There you'll see how God would have you live. These words sank deep in Martin's heart, and that same day he opened the New Testament and began to read. At first he meant only to read on holidays, but having once begun, he found it made his heart so light that he read every day. Sometimes he was so absorbed in his reading that the oil in his lamp burned out before he could tear himself away from the book. The more he read, the more he felt his love for the Lord growing stronger. His heart grew lighter as well. From that time forward, Martin's whole life changed. He drank and gossiped less. When he was tempted to say unkind words, he refrained. His life became peaceful and joyful. One night, as he was reading his Bible, he drifted to sleep. Suddenly, he heard a voice. Martin, it said, who's there, he asked. Martin, the voice said, look out onto the street tomorrow, for I shall come. The cobbler rose from his chair and rubbed his eyes, but did not know whether he had heard these words in a dream or awake. The next morning, as he was working, he thought about what had happened the night before. At times, it seemed as though it must have been a dream and at times he thought he had really heard the voice. Could it be that his beloved Savior would visit him in his humble shop? While he worked, he looked out onto the street at everyone who passed by to see if he recognized their face. After a while, an old soldier with worn and shabby boots came near the window. Martin knew the man. He had no money and stayed with a neighbor who had, out of charity, had offered him a room in exchange 
for help around the house. It was cold outside, and it started to snow, and the old soldier was trying to get warm by the leaning against Martin's building. Martin put some tea on the, on the stove and invited the man into his shop. Don't trouble to wipe your feet, Martin said. I'll wipe up the floor. It's all in a day's work. The old man sat down and emptied his glass. Martin offered him another while, continuing to look out the window onto the street. Are you expecting someone, the visitor asked. Well, now, Martin said, I'm ashamed to tell you. It isn't that I really expect anyone, but I heard something last night which I can't get out of my mind. And he told the old man about the voice he had heard. The old soldier listened intently, and after drinking a third glass of tea, he thanked Martin for giving him food and comfort both for the soul as well as for the body, and told him he hoped he wouldn't be disappointed and that his visitor would appear. Later in the day, Martin noticed a woman who he had never seen before. She was poorly dressed, wearing only summer clothes that were shabby and worn. On her feet she wore peasant-made shoes, and she had a baby in her arms. Through the window Martin could see the woman was shivering. He could hear the baby crying and the woman trying to soothe it. Martin went out and insisted that she enter his shop. Sit down near the stove, he told her. Warm yourself and feed the baby. She told him that she had no milk to feed the baby and that she hadn't eaten herself since early morning. Martin made some soup and offered the woman some bread. While the woman ate, Martin held the baby. As they talked, Martin learned that she had been working as a cook until her baby was born, but that her employer wouldn't keep her on with a newborn child. She had no money for food and had pawned her last shawl for a few coins the day before. She explained that a woman in another village had offered her a position and that she was on her way towards that village when Martin invited her in. Martin smiled and gave the woman a cloak to wrap her baby in. He then handed her some coins and told her to get her shawl out of pawn. After she left, Martin went back to work, always looking outside the window, hoping against hope to see the face of the one he loved with all his heart, his Savior. Time passed, and after a while Martin saw an apple vendor stop just in front of his window. She was attempting to shift an old sack from one shoulder to the other when a boy in a tattered cap ran up, snatched an apple, and tried to slip away. But the woman was too quick, and she caught the boy and held on to him with both hands. She knocked the cap off his head and seized hold of his hair. The woman scolded, and the boy screamed. Martin rushed out of the door as he heard the woman threatening to take the boy to the police. He separated the boy from the woman and begged the woman to forgive him. Although the woman did not want to let him go, something in Martin's words touched her, and she let him go. As she did so, the young boy saw his opportunity and tried to run away, but he did not get far. Martin seized him, held him fast, and insisted he ask the woman for forgiveness. The boy, realizing he had nowhere to run, cried and pleaded for the woman to forgive him. Seeing that the boy was truly penitent, Martin paid the woman for then an apple and gave it to the boy, telling him not to steal again. By the time Martin returned to his little shop, 
he noticed the lamplighter passing on his way to light the street lamps. Evening had come. The Savior had not appeared. Finally, Martin put away his tools and pulled down his beloved Bible from the shelf. He meant to open, open it at the place he had marked the day before, but the book opened to another place. As Martin opened it, his experience of the night before came back into his mind, and no sooner had he thought of it than he seemed to hear footsteps as though someone were moving behind him. And a voice whispered in his ear, Martin, Martin, don't you know me? Who is it? muttered Martin. It is I, said the voice, and out of the dark corner stepped the old soldier, who smiled and then vanished like a cloud. It is I, said the voice again, and out of the darkness stepped the woman with the baby in her arms, and the woman smiled and the baby smiled, and they too vanished. It is I, said the voice once more, and the old woman and the boy with the apple stepped out and both smiled, and then they too vanished. And Martin's soul grew glad. He put on his spectacles and began reading the gospel just where it had opened. And at the top of the page he read, I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. And at the bottom of the page he read, Inasmuch as ye had done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And Martin understood that his dream had come true, and that the Savior had really come to him that day, and he had welcomed him. My dear brothers and sisters, you stand at the threshold of an amazing and wonderful journey. As one who has gone before you, I offer these two words of counsel, two sources of light that will provide light for you throughout your life's journey. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the essence of who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. As a special witness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I testify with all my heart that the gospel of Jesus Christ is restored to earth again. I testify that a young boy retired to a grove of trees and sought the answers to the questions of his heart. God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith, and so began the great work of restoration that unveiled the gospel in all its fullness. Jesus the Christ lives. He loved us so much that he paid the ultimate price to save us from our sins. Jesus the Christ lives today. He is not aloof nor disinterested in our lives. He has told us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The heavens are not closed. The master of ocean, earth, and sky speaks to prophets and apostles today. All who approach him with humility and real intent, seeking to know of him, surely shall find him. It is my testimony to you today that as we make our lives living monuments that testify of our love for God and for our fellow man, we walk in the path that leads to eternal life. That we may do so is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Loving the Lord and Staying on His Side, with thoughts from Sherry L. Dew and Joseph B. Worthlin. 
Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.